The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 19. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44 this morning. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where you are entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the glory of Christ in ways that the crowds very few saw, very few endured in their praise of Christ. Father, would you let us see his glory in his first coming, humble and riding on a donkey. Father, I pray that we would know what makes for peace. Father, I pray that we would know the opportunity, the privilege before every sinner in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts specifically, that you would convict us of sin, that we would turn to Christ and find forgiveness and that our hearts would rejoice in Him. Uh, Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. People throughout the history of uh, since Christ have found many different ways and reasons to reject Christ. Uh, rejecting Christ has always come in a lot of different forms. At one point, Jesus said the world rejects him and hates him because he testifies that their works are evil. 
that their deeds are evil. And so people don't want to hear that, and they rejected Christ. Some received Christ outwardly, but rejected him inwardly. They would proclaim to follow Christ, but his real authority over their hearts and in their lives is ignored. Essentially, a type of Christ is accepted who then turns into the type of Christ that particular heart wants. Rather than looking at the Scripture, at the Christ that we find in the Scripture, many people receive Christ for some time and then end up rejecting them. We can, rejecting Him, we can think of the parable of the soils that when persecution and times get tough, they then uh, turn away from Christ. And often, for that particular one, and that's maybe one of the most common ones, and maybe the most relevant one when preaching to a congregation of, of people who are here for all sorts of different reasons, some born again and knowing Christ, others may be here for reasons uh, other than that, who have yet to be uh, changed uh, of the heart. But often, false expectations lead to rejecting Christ. People think they're receiving this Christ, but because their expectations were false, they fall away. I remember an illustration the evangelist uh, Ray Comfort would use of a man who was going to get on an airplane and another man would come up to him and say, hey, I see you're getting on this airplane. Put on this backpack. You're just going to love it. It's going to make your trip and your flight so wonderful. And, and I just want to give you this gift, uh, this, this uh, backpack, and just keep it on. It'll bless you while, while you're on the flight. And, and so the man says, okay, this is kind of weird, but he puts it on and he gets onto the plane and he's sitting there and he kind of turns towards the window a little bit. His backpack sticks out into the aisle and the stewardess not bumps into it and spills coffee on him. And he's like, what in the world is going on? I thought this backpack is supposed to make my trip better. And the guy says, Sitting there, he's got to lean over and he's like, man, my back's starting to ache. And on top of that, he's looking around. People are laughing at him and pointing at him. Look at that guy. He's wearing a backpack on an airplane. He should have put that up in the stowaway. So finally, the guy gets upset and he gets angry at the man that told him his flight was going to be good. And he takes off the backpack. He slams it on the ground. He says, if I ever see that guy again, I'm going to have words with him. And the reason why... And then Ray Comfort says, let's imagine another scenario, kind of like it. A guy gets on a plane, the plane takes off, guy comes up and says, hey, put this backpack on. Well, why is that? Well, because we're going to climb to 40,000 feet, and the engine's going to go out, and there's a parachute in here. Your only hope of survival is if you cling to this backpack with all your life and, and are able to be saved from a plane that's going down. And Ray Comfort used that example as a, two things an evangelist can do. An evangelist can go to their friends and say, oh, you need to receive Jesus. He's going to make your life better. 
He's going to make it easier. It's going to be great. Your circumstances are going to start panning out. Well, when they don't, what do they do? They're done with Christ. But what is the truth? What, what would right expectations be when sharing the gospel? The reality is, is the plane's already flying. It's going to crash because of our sins and we're going to face God. And our only hope is that somehow there's a parachute. There's something that can save us from this impending crash and it's Christ. And if a person receives Christ, knowing their plane is taken off, the plane is going to crash, then no matter the ridicule or the heartache following Christ brings in this world, you're not letting go of that thing. Because you weren't given false expectations about what Christ is going to do for you. And as we consider the triumphal entry text, we see on this particular day the crowds singing his praises and a week later rejecting him and crucifying him. We say, how, how could this be? How, how can we make sense of this? Are these different people? What has happened? And I think the thing that's clear is that the expectations of the Messiah were off base. They were according to human wisdom and not according to what the Scripture had actually taught them. It is normal. It would have been normal for anyone in Israel who was waiting for the Messiah, the coming king, uh, to see that that Messiah represented peace. When Messiah came, peace came. And Israel hasn't been at peace for years and years. And when things were bad, they could always at least hope in Messiah that someday someone was going to come and bring peace, that Israel wouldn't be enslaved to their enemies anymore. And the human heart longs for peace. Even the violent person longs for peace. The violent person is probably angry because they didn't get peace in some way. Maybe it was in their upbringing or whatever. But the human heart longs to be at peace and the human heart longs for a king. And that's built right into creation. If we were going to look at Genesis 1 and look at Adam and Eve being created right away, God tells them to have dominion. In a sense, they're two, it's a king and queen that are to rule under the king and to have the king's glory rule through kings and queens. So right away in Genesis 1, the king language is, is there. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Uh, and uh, this continues on even through Genesis. A couple weeks ago, Scott tossed you guys the trick question as who is the greatest person in the Old Testament? And some of you might say Abraham. Some of you might say uh, it would be Moses. 
But then uh, Scott read to you from Genesis 14, and this, this obscure uh, account uh, it, where it says, after his return from defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, Chedorlaomer is this king that's destroying all other kings. He's, he's the king of kings of those days. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought bread and wine. So what has just happened is uh, uh, Lot had been taken captive, and, and Abraham went and whooped Chedorlaomer. So the, one that, the, the king that was whooping everyone else gets whooped by Abraham, but then Melchizedek, this unique figure, king of Salem, literally king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He, he was the priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, our Abram, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be uh, God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him the tenth of everything. So the one who you would think would be the greatest gives a tithe to someone yet greater than himself. And obviously Melchizedek points forward to a priest king that's going to come in the future. And then as you read the Old Testament, you continue to see uh, uh, as God re recommits the covenant uh, to Abraham, he says, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and make you into nations and kings will come from you. Genesis 17, 6. And he does the same thing to Jacob in, in Genesis 35. Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So, so he shall call his name Israel. And God said to him, I am a mighty God, be fruitful and multiply. A nation... Uh, and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So in Genesis, why is it that the best movies have to do with kings and kingdoms? There's just something built into the human heart, built into who we're even supposed to be in having dominion over this earth. And we're longing for this one to make all things right, this, this king. And then in the Old Testament, obviously, when the first king came to Israel, uh, 1 Samuel 8, yeah, I think it's helpful to look at this in verse 4. Here's what, it, here's what we read. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected from me from being king over them. The people of Israel have always wanted a king. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted a tangible king, a king that would just come and whoop their enemies right there in front of them. And in a sense, they get God's man, 
A, a man after God's own heart, meaning the man that God chose, not the one the people chose. The people chose Saul. God chose David. And then David is given a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that you're probably familiar with. And he says, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. That's peace, right? And I'll make your name great like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That's peace. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my, the people of Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you'll lie down with your fathers and I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And I say all this to say, the day Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they recognize him as the Messiah, you have to understand the expectations that they have. They are under oppressive Roman rule. They're extracting unfair taxes from them. They're oppressing them. There's times where... Uh, the rulers just slaughter them and there's no peace when at any moment Rome could come in and rape your daughters or take your wives or take every, all your fields and the things you've worked for. And so we read and as, as we come to this text, we need to understand that it's not a surprise that they're a little bit frustrated with Christ as things go on. I mean, right after he rides in Jerusalem, next week we're going to look and what are we going to see is that he goes in and he clears the temple. When they expect him to defeat Rome, he comes into the temple and he speaks judgment on the nation of Israel. That's not the type of Messiah they wanted. That's not the type of peace that they were expecting. And so when we come to this text, we have to remember what was just shared, the parable of the ten minas, and the purpose of that parable, he told it is because the people expected the kingdom to come immediately. And what he showed them is there's going to have to be a long time of stewardship before the kingdom comes. Christ isn't going to roll in and wipe out all their enemies and everything's going to be fine at the end of this day. But there's going to have to be a time of stewardship and there will be a time of incredible reward for the faithful stewards of, uh, of that kingdom. And so when we read in verse 28, and, and in your notes this is under the heading, take comfort in the preparation of the Messiah, we see that the Messiah is in control. Things aren't out of control, but they're going exactly according to Christ's plan. And his plan does not mean peace on this earth for 
his people. But there's comfort if the Messiah is good and if it's his plan, there's comfort even for his people in the midst of a world that is hostile towards you. And and before we jump into it, I just want to remind you of one more thing. The last two chapters, the one thing we would say about it is, one theme is this, the way you think Jesus would be and the way he actually is, is opposite. People have been shocked. The Lord listens to the widow. The Lord saves the tax collector. The Lord accepts children. The rich young ruler is rejected. Jesus says, I'm going to go die he heals the blind beggar when everyone's telling the blind beggar to shut up. And he says salvation has come to Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house. All this is contrary to what people expected of Jesus. This was hard for them to grasp. And so we're just continuing on in this. And so in verse 28, we read, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now this is crazy. This is crazy. Jesus went on ahead up to Jerusalem. Soldiers didn't lead him there in chains. He went ahead. (laughs) The reason why it's crazy is because this is what's already, (laughs) here's common knowledge. John 11.55 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. People knew this. The word was out. They're looking for Jesus and they want to arrest him. And Jesus goes on ahead to Jerusalem. Mark's account makes this clear. Mark 10, 32, he says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This Jesus is a shocking character. Hard to understand. (laughs) He's leading them. They're amazed. He looks back at them and says, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me there. They're going to reject me there. They're going to torture me there. So when we read in our verse where it says he went on ahead of them going up to Jerusalem, this is an amazing thing. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, this is two miles east of Jerusalem, a place Jesus was often when he would visit Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, A week previous to this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And, and, and so word is out. In fact, I think it's helpful to read John 12 as we look at this, but before we look at the rest of this text, it gives us some important features, I think, that'll help us. Uh, so in John 12, beginning in verse 1, let's get some timing of things here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So Jesus was here a week earlier whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at a table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and he anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So you're familiar with that event. And then in verse 9 it says, the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there and they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to uh, put Lazarus to death as well. So there's already plans to kill Jesus. And they know he's there. And they want to see Lazarus so they can kill him. And they want to see Jesus so they can kill him. And, and the reason was because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the leaders were jealous. And then in verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is shocking. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It's almost like, okay, if he has that much guts and he's going to walk into, ride into Jerusalem, he's going to slaughter us coming. All right, let's, let's get behind this guy. He's showing boldness. Everyone knows they want to kill him. And so they show up saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, Hosanna means the Lord saves now, right now. Hosanna, here's our salvation. Here's where all of our enemies go away. Here's where all of, everything's going to be wiped away. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then here's what we read in verse 16 of John 12. His disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't understand Zechariah 9.9 at the time. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. So that's what John says. The crowd that had been with him uh, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb uh, and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So John even tells us why the crowd is there. They're still in, so amazed by the miracles and, and, and by raising Lazarus from the dead. So... Uh, and then the Pharisees say to one another, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's going bad for the Pharisees. The, the crowds are going after him. Finally, they're going to get peace. And what I would say on point one is take comfort in that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what he was doing. 
and he had boldness in the face of suffering and learn that Jesus first conquers through suffering. He doesn't conquer first by vengeance, but through suffering. And then take comfort in the humility of the Messiah. If Jesus were like us, what would you do with Jesus's power at that moment? You would come in and you would destroy everyone, all, all your enemies, all Israel's enemies, and you would be the hero. And if that was who Christ was first, he's coming to do that, to bring judgment. But he first came humbly born in a manger. He first came looking unimpressive. He first came riding on a donkey, not on a white war horse. And if he would have done what you and I would have done, we would all be dead in our trespasses and sins because we would not know what makes for peace. What we think makes for peace is our enemies being destroyed and they did not understand who or what their enemy was. And Jesus was there to bring peace. The type of peace that needs to come first is peace before man and God before there ever can be peace between man and man. But this is not what was expected by the crowds. But here's what we read. Here's what they did. Verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, this cult. And, well, let's look at that uh, text. Let's, let's look at the end of 29 there. And he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Jesus hadn't been there yet. So we see his omniscience here. Where on entering it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So we're expecting someone holy to use this. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So once again, he foresees the future. He knows what's there and what's going to happen. So those who were sent went away, found it just as the Lord had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. A couple of things that says its owners. People were so poor in Jerusalem at a time, there needed to be more one owner of a little donkey. There was shared investment <laughs> in a donkey. This is an oppressed people at an oppressed time and the disciples just show up start untying it and they ask the question that you would expect them to ask why why are you doing this and in verse 35 it says they they brought it to jesus and throwing their cloaks on it are on on the colt they set jesus on it and as they rode along they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already on the way down to the mount of olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. It was coming to remembrance. All these miracles, all this power, all this supernatural power culminating in the Messiah. And they know this is the Messiah. They've read Zechariah 9. They've read Psalm 128. 
they recognize what this is culminating into, and it's becoming a frenzy of worship as they're going, okay, all this power, all these miracles coming in this king. He doesn't really look as we thought he would. He's not on a white war, war horse, but let's see what happens here. <laughs> There's great expectation going to be followed by great disappointment when he doesn't do what they expect. Once again, thank God that Jesus is fulfilling the good plan where you and I can be saved and he's ready to go to the cross. But this is the scene. Matthew tells us in Matthew 21, uh, verse 4, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of, of a beast of burden. So Matthew just tells us this is fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 and 10 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Is Jesus righteous? Yes. Is he bringing salvation by going to a cross? Yes. Humble and mounted on a donkey. They should have, it was there in the text. They should have had right expectations. Rejection came because their expectations went above the word of God. And you and I do this often. We bounce off the scripture and then say, here's what I think I would like it to say. But are your expectations set by the word of God? There's, there's just a, we can learn from this. And then in verse 10, it says, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bowl shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Ah, this is a weird conquering king. And rather than just slaughtering the nations, he's speaking peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Now, if you continue reading on Zechariah's prophecy, uh, what it, it's really interesting, what you end up seeing is that there will be a day when Israel will finally humble themselves and repent. Read the end of Zechariah 12 and the first verse of Zechariah 13.1, when Israel finally humbles themselves and says, blessed is is." Uh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That day will come when Israel repents. And then you read Zechariah 14 and you get to see Jesus coming on the war horse. Yeah, you get to see all of it. But if you miss it, if you make the mistake and expect Jesus to make your life easy here and now, and, and you don't, under, don't understand Zechariah 9, Zechariah 12 and 13, and then 14 in the progression, uh, you also might have misguided expectations about uh, what is coming. Uh, and if that's confusing to you, 
we'll get into more of this in the coming days in Luke. Uh, but John MacArthur says the first time Jesus came, or he would not come the first time as a conquering hero riding on a white horse. That'll happen when he comes again in glory to judge and reign as the king of kings. The first time he came in humility to give his life as a ransom for sinners. He did not come in grandeur, but in meekness, not to slay, but to save. His coming incarnation is the time of humiliation. His second coming in exaltation is the time of his glorification. And so there is a time that is opened even to you now today. The first advent, the first coming of Christ when he's offering peace to the nations. People can have peace with God in their sins is open to you right now. If you know the time of your visitation. If you've merely looked at Jesus as he'll make my life a, a little better. Uh, things are going to start going better for me. We're going to start winning political victories. We're going to start. Well, I can tell you, you're not going to last if, if that's where you think peace is going to come from. Peace needs to come between you and God. And all of you are dead in your trespasses and sins outside of Christ. All of you need Christ. And so what the people do, though, is they take off their cloaks and they lay it down so that Jesus can ride in. And the taking off of their cloaks so that the donkey could ride on them, they were essentially saying, this cloak represents my life. And I lay it down under the authority of the king that rides in, in to Jerusalem. You're our king. You have our commitment. <laughs> You're the ruler. They're basically saying, your way. Until... It doesn't go the way they want. Then they want his authority overthrown. But that is the gesture of what's happening when he's riding in to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, in 1 Maccabees 13.51, the apocryphal book that records when the Jews during the intertestinal periods recaptured Jerusalem from the Syrians, uh, here's what we read happened. On the 23rd day of the second month, the 171st year, the Jews entered with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because the great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So the palm branches represent a king that's just slaughtered his enemies. And so this is what the expectation is. Hosanna! Waving the palm branches. Save now. Here's the king that's going to save now. And they were saying, blessed, verse 38, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're speaking in a sense prophetic words. Jesus is coming to bring peace in heaven. 
Glory to God in the highest. Jesus has just taught us that all heaven rejoices when? When a sinner repents. When a sinner repents and comes to God for mercy, all heaven rejoices and there can be peace between sinful man on earth and God in heaven. That is true, but they had no idea how Christ could bring peace in heaven and with sinful man on earth. And that's a quotation of Psalm 118.26. And here's what Bach says about this psalm. The use of this psalm is significant because in Jewish worship, it is seen ultimately as the celebrating Uh, ultimately is celebrating God's plan, the culmination of God's plan. One day, the one greeted as coming in the Lord's name, he would be the Messiah. The psalm was used in the Feast of Tabernacles for just this reason. So joy and cries of peace surround the verse's use here. Just as heaven rejoices when a sinner is found, heaven rejoices when the king enters the city. So this is all that is taking place. And you have all sorts of different people. People with approaching Jesus in different ways. You have the crowds that are ecstatic, but then you have Pharisees. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think what I'm going to do, just looking at the clock here, is I'm going to give you a quick summary of these verses, and then I want to come back. There's too much richness in this next section to not pick it up again next week. But I do want to bring the full picture into view for you. So the Pharisees, losing all hope, they could tell the crowds to shut up, but they can't stop the crowds. It's a a fervor beyond control. No one's paying attention to them. So last resort, they're they're like a bunch of losers that are are like, the the last thing we can do is tell the one who's bringing this about to stop it. So they come to Jesus, tell them to be quiet. Tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if I were to tell them to stop these crowd, the the very stones would cry out. And, And it seems like there's two options on how to interpret that. One is that praise would even come out of creation if they didn't rightfully receive Christ as he comes into Jerusalem. The other interpretation one John MacArthur has is that uh, this is in the future tense. So he's saying, literally, when you become silent, the stones will cry out in judgment against you. Pointing to Habakkuk 2, where it talks about the stones of the building crying out in judgment. And, And so MacArthur sees a prediction that although they're praising him now, silence is gonna come. And then at that time, judgment, Creation will even cry out in judgment uh, uh, against them. And then, I couldn't 
Well, I'll get into that next week. And then in verse 41, it says, when he drew near, he saw the city and he saw the city. He wept over it. Now, this is weird. The crowds are excited. Jesus is weeping. The Pharisees are angry. Jesus is a weird man. He doesn't line up with anybody, does he? Pharisees are angry. The crowds are ecstatic. Jesus is crying. Because Jesus actually sees it as it is. He knows what's going on. And that tells us something, I think. Jesus in God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He weeps over unbelief. Even though God sovereignly saves, it's not like they're robots and pawns. These are people with willing unbelief, and he's weeping. And then he says in verse 22, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. What are the things? The things are the things that John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Repent and believe. The Pharisees, the scribes, they come to John's baptism. Why are you here? You don't want to repent. Let your life match up with your repentance. The things that make for repentance would be them recognizing their own need for sin and their need for Jesus to die on the cross for them. And then look at the judgment. But now they are hidden from your eyes. God's judgment on the people of Israel is this. You've seen so much. You've willingly hardened your hearts against the Christ. And on this day, which Daniel prophesied to the very day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. The culmination, Israel finally gets their king coming to win for them the greatest peace they could ever know, peace between God and man. They're blind to it. And that's the judgment on them. They didn't know the time of their visitation. And then so Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus can see it all. He says, what you want in your hearts is peace from your enemies. And I can see right now Jerusalem and the temple and every stone being thrown down, thrown down and judgment coming upon you. And so Jesus is weeping as he speaks judgment on Israel. And this has everything to do with you. And it has everything to do with me. Because God in his grace has tarried, has waited in his kindness, he's given a time for repentance, for a person to recognize their need for Jesus and their need for peace between them and God. And what Jesus did 
This is the beginning of the week. At the end of the week, he carries your sin and my sin to the cross, dies under the wrath of God for our sins so that we can be reconciled to him. Are your eyes opened? Do you realize the opportunity? Have you only ever looked at Jesus as an opportunity to make your life easier? Or have you seen him like this backpack? He's my only hope. If I want peace with my wife, I need peace with God first. If I want peace with this world, I need peace with God first. Are you chasing peace but don't have peace with God? My prayer is that you would cling to Christ as your only hope. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his humility, his willingness to go to the cross. The amount of disrespect, insincere worship that he received and yet he died for those people. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to see and hearts to receive Christ. And Lord, I pray next week that we would come with anticipation to see the richness of, of all the fulfillments to your prophecies here. And, and I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.